Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, unseasonably warm here on the East Coast of the U.S., and uh, and it's not the best weather for talking about tabletop role-playing games. However, we have been playing quite a lot of them lately, and in no small part because I'm so excited that we have basically a month until this huge new Blade Runner role-playing game comes out. And we are joined today by the man who is in charge of designing it, as well as being the co-founder and CEO of Free League Games, which I hope we get to talk about today. But anyway, uh, Thomas Herrenstam, welcome to Shoulder of Ryan, the Blade Runner podcast. Thank you. Great to be on. Welcome. Yeah, we're thrilled. This is one of those releases that has been creeping up for a long time. It was pretty early this year that we got the first win that it was coming out. And many of us, actually, Thomas, you might not know this, but we also run the Alien Saga podcast, Perfect Organism. So we've been talking uh-huh. about your work for you know years now in that regard. Uh, so knowing that Free League was coming out with another you know, year zero based uh, core rule set, you know, uh, incredible, beautiful booklet, high production value, story driven RPG set in the Blade Runner universe. That was like a really exciting piece of news to get. And I guess as we kind of get rolling here, can you take us back a little bit to the genesis of this project and how it started? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, we always felt we have we had worked with some licensed games uh, earlier, but it was we were starting out, and we had a. This is four, almost five years ago now. We had a bit of a just a brainstorm. What would be like? Should we do like licensed role playing games? What would be like the dream licenses to do? And I think me certainly, but I think a lot of us here uh, in the team we're huge Alien and Blade Runner fans, and those I mean they they there is something there with those two you know, uh, universes, they, they, they have something that kind of ties them together and a kind of a tone that, that just kind of resonates with us. Uh, so both Alien and Blade Runner were, were on that very, very short list of dream licenses. We didn't really expect to actually land them and make those games back then. It was just an idea, but pretty quickly, we actually got in touch with, uh, he's a guy called Joe Lefavi. He works in, in LA and he works in licensing and games. And we met and, and hit it off and, and made it and started pitching for these together. And as it turned out, Alien moved a bit faster in the early, you know, so Alien kind of took the lead. Uh, so that was the one that actually just a few months later uh, got off the ground and we started working on the game. And, and uh, Blade Runner, we still discussed there were you know talks these things take time sometimes uh, and it took a bit maybe like two years before we actually got that one to to you know to sign the agreement for blade runner as well and for me that was like you know amazing to have both of those amazing franchises and, and make games out of both of them that was you know something we didn't even dream of doing only like two and a half years earlier that's awesome when you approach a game like Blade Runner, what are the first steps you're taking? Yeah, I mean, I think for any game that we do, and, and especially licensed games, I think it's kind of to have a you know good think about how, what is like the core, 
what is the essence of this world, this franchise? What what should the game be about? I mean, it's not just. It's easy, perhaps, to think. Well, it's just you know, just make some rules and 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 you know, portray the world and 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 go play and do anything. You can make games like that, but I think we always try to kind of and really support specific types of stories, themes to make the stories that you tell through the game to be about something. And uh, so really, uh, and that kind of influences everything else, everything from graphic design to the art to and the rules design, absolutely, to, to, to have it all kind of tied together and support and enhance the themes and the stories that we think that this franchise is about. So it always starts with that and that because that means what you should be focusing on in the game and what you should not care that much about. And you always have to make those choices. And that I think is the start of the process for for any RPG that we make, but and certainly, definitely Blade Runner. That's great. And I want to get into some of the ways that that shows up in the gameplay and the story building. Before we do, can you take us a little bit into the setup for this game? It takes place in 2037. You're a member of the LA Reptitect unit. You are, this is in terms of the Blade Runner timeline for people who might not have it, you know, at hand. This is shortly after the events of 2036 Nexus Dawn, the short that came out before 2049 did. And so in that one, we learned that Nexus 9s are now going forward, going to be, it's going to be the end of the replicant prohibition. And so this is right after those events in Los Angeles. Can you take us a little bit through the kind of the setup for the game? Yeah, I mean, this is also something that we discussed a lot. I mean, one key decision, obviously, is the fact that in the core game, at least, this might be uh, expanded in in later modules, but in the core game, the characters you play are all Blade Runners. That's sort of one of those choices that I mentioned, that, of course, making that choice means that, yeah, maybe you want it to be something completely different in this world, and then the game won't really support that as much, at least not uh, in the base game. But we felt that the Blade Runner game, the films are about, I mean, the Blade Runners are the core of the game. And we also realized that we wanted to make this an investigative game that you kind of solve cases. That's kind of the core gameplay. And then it felt natural to limit the scope of the game in this in, in this way that we actually, you, you are Blade Runners. You can be replicants, you can be humans, but you are Blade Runners. And that's, I think, an important step to take that we that we kind of narrow down the scope in that sense to make the, the experience in the game more focused. And another key factor here is also when in the timeline of the Blade Runner universe, we should set this game. And of course you have the two films, which are the two main ten, you know, poles, the, you know, the main points to navigate around. And, and our solution, our idea was to set the game in between them for a number of reasons, but I think um, mainly is that we wanted to give ourselves a little bit of creative freedom that we didn't want to play in exactly the same time as the films. And also it gave us the opportunity to draw inspiration and even spe- you know, specific locations. And in some cases, even characters from both films, which was you know, fantastic to kind of draw them together. And that's kind of where the idea came up. And the fact that we set it in 2037 is that we wanted, like you mentioned, the short uh, that set in 2036 that introduces uh, replicants on Earth again. And we, I thought we thought it would be interesting to play replicants and that to do that, you kind of had to set the date after 2036 because that's the date when they were reintroduced. So that's why we ended up in the end with 2037. So that's kind of the thought process behind that. 
And in terms of how we get into the game as players, you know, one, one of my favorite aspects of any role-playing game is character creation. I don't know why. I just feel like, like last night, for example, the kids and I were just creating workboard characters because it's just fun to do that and to see what they come out yeah. like and then to kind of scope it out how you want the character to grow and have its own story. Um, can you talk a little bit about character creation in this? Is it that sort of a, are there a lot of tables you roll for, a lot of uh, stats and abilities? Like how does this, how do we create characters for this thing? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we wanted to do early on, we felt was right for Blade Runner is that it's it's not super crunchy. I mean, we kind of generally have really uh, lean toward the more narrative story-driven games, not the super crunchy uh, combat-focused games, maybe, even though combat does certainly occur. And, and even in, 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 the, in terms of our portfolio, I think Blade Runner leans toward the rules lighter side. And that's we felt that for Blade Runner, there's the character development uh, is such an important part of the story, the kind of the introspection, the moral choices, all of that really needed to be a big part of the game. And we felt that very crunchy mechanics can get in the way of that. So instead, when we did character creation, uh, of course, there are mechanics, there are numbers, you have your, you know, you have, you know, stats, skills, stuff like that. But you also have uh, in the character creation process, you create, for example, a key memory, which is even no matter if you're a replicant or a human, you still have a key memory, which is kind of a touchstone for your character that you can kind of relate back to and even incorporate into the story in different ways. And of course, that goes back to the, the memories of, of Kay in 2049 and, and, and of course, Rachel's memories in the original film. And we kind of carry that on and wanted to make that a big part. So every player character in, in the game has their own key memory that somehow informs the way you play their character. So that's, we kind of, and then there is also a key relationship, some other person that is important to you in some way. So for Blade Runner, we felt it was right to lean more in toward that kind of more, if you want to call it a bit more softer character creation with these kinds of elements rather than only hard numbers. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a few parts of it, I guess. In terms of the setup as, things that you're discussing in terms of replicants and blade runners and storyline, who do you bring on to assist with that? Like, I don't know if there's any kind of blade runner expert per se, but does Alcon have a part in this conversation? Who's really helping you to not just build characters, but fit it into the timeline. So it, it, it matches up really well. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, course a key thing for any licensed games uh to to make sure it fits within the canon and the previously established facts of the world and the timeline and everything and and yeah so it's it's something we do in 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 uh, for for blade runner it's actually the same person that i mentioned joe lafavi who, who actually was part of brokering the deal he's also very much a blade runner you know fan we are all we're all huge blade runner fans obviously but he has that kind of level of encyclopedic expertise uh, to and he's also worked uh, he was an editor for an art book about the 2049 film so he has already worked with with the franchise before and and of course he is also our link to Alcon who also have their they're the custodians there of, of of the of the franchise so we work with Alcon and with Joe uh, to create a world that that is in sync with, of course, the two films primarily, but there's been more world building in, in video games recently, the recent comics, 
and and uh, things like and the short films that we mentioned as well. So they they all paint a picture of the world that we had to. Our game needs to sync up with that and and be a part of that same world so that you feel you're in the same universe. So and then of course everything we do is is vetted and and checked by by Alcon before we publish it. So that's also part of the process. So actually I'm I was mostly my my role was as a primarily a, a rules designer to design the structure of the game the way it's played uh, whereas Joe was the setting writer so he wrote the stuff about you know the specific world specific uh, descriptions things like that so that's the way the work was div- divided between me and Joe and so in that regard it's kind of similar to your relationship with Andrew Gaska on the alien RPG correct yeah that's right that's pretty much the same kind of uh, division of, of work yeah got it so uh, focusing back on some of the things that I know you were very much involved with, uh, I'm, I'm really excited because I'm talking to the person who invented the Year Zero engine, which is like a core mechanic of many things that I enjoy, uh, the Alien RPG, of course, being one of them. And uh, so I want to talk about that for a moment. And just to explain to people what I'm talking about. So most tabletop role-playing games adhere to some form of rules that reminds you of Dungeons and Dragons, especially the fifth edition of it, where there's a core, you know, D20 rule set. Um, And usually role-playing games play somewhat with that. Like you have your standard set of die that you roll for various things. But what's so cool about the year zero engine is that um, it uses like a whole panoply of six-sided die and you have a whole fistful of them and you throw them. And a lot of the time it's the skill tests are passed by getting a certain number of sixes or ones and things like that. So it feels mechanically similar in some ways to Dungeons and Dragons, but it's refreshingly different. So if you could take us back for a second to the Year Zero engine and how you kind of came up with it and then how that translates into Blade Runner, because I know there are some deviations from it, although it's a Year Zero game. Uh, can you give us a little insight into that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, what what came to be the Year Zero engine, it it uh, actually started out as the game system that we designed uh, for for a game. Uh, the uh, first game we did internationally, we had done a few. I mean, we're Swedish uh, companies. So we had done a few small games in Swedish before, but the first one we did uh, in English and 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 launched uh, globally was a game called Mutant Year Zero, which is a uh, uh, also a licensed game based on an old Swedish uh, post-apocalyptic uh, RPG that, that's been going since 1984. It was called Mutant only back then, but our version uh, was called Mutant Year Zero, and that was released in 2014 now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's getting, getting some legs. So yeah, but that game system that was developed for that game, initially, we, there was no plan to ever make that into kind of an, an engine to use in other games or anything like that. It was just the rules for that particular game. Uh, and we had that used a D6 dice pool. I mean, certainly that was not the only game in, in, in the world who did that. Certainly lots of other games have done dice pools and D6 dice pools and, and before. So certainly, and this, I think a lot of the inspiration for the Year Zero engine or this rule set came from the kind of indie games, Forge movement uh, that back in the doubles, um, that there was lots of cool ideas in, in, in RPGs, lots of small indie publications came out back then. And I was very into that. And I think we uh, the games that we did early on were very much influenced by that. I think the Year Zero engine is not as indie, but it still has some of the definitely some of the inspiration and and roots from that kind of movement. And and in general, you're generalizing a lot here, but it, those games and also our games tended to 
lean more toward kind of story-driven, character-driven things. And this rule set also, I think, uh, helps or supports that kind of play rather than a very crunchy, very uh, mathematical type of game system that you might have in some other, other games. So that's how it started. And then we just by chance made an, we, when we made an, another game called Coriolis, which is a sci-fi game that we released in 2017, I think. That was the next game after Mutant Year Zero. We never actually intended to use the same core rules engine, but we never got the rules for Coriolis quite the way we wanted. So in the end, we just said, let's just try the same core engine as in Mutant Year Zero and tweak it. And we did, and it worked pretty well. And then when we did the next game, that was Tales from the Loop. It was like, let's just try tweaking the Year Zero system again and see how that works. And it worked out pretty well. And by then, it kind of started to become its own rules engine and we even did later an uh, open game license for it so anyone who wants to can just create their own year zero engine game uh, using those rules so it's turned out to be it has kind of become our house rules engine for games by now we always tweak it quite a lot though and, and as you mentioned blade runner we have made some significant changes to it actually but it still has some of the core ingredients that i think stay uh, to support that kind of narrative type of, of play. Um, specifically then for, for Blade Runner, we, we actually moved away from the previous dice pool uh, formula where most of the other games had, like you mentioned there, uh, lots of D6s that you threw across the table, maybe like five, five to 10 dice and you want to roll uh, sixes. Uh, whereas in Blade Runner and also another game that we released recently called Twilight 2000, uh, we actually changed that. So you rolled two dice instead of, of, of a handful of them and they, you used the, the poly dice. So you could have your D8s and D10s and D12s, but you still want to look for sixes or higher. The change can look like a big one, but actually mathematically, it's not that big of a change. I think the reason we did that for Blade Runner is that we wanted to limit the number of dice on the table. It's more of a physical uh game feel thing because in blade runner you have lots of handouts it's an investigative games game so you'll have lots of handouts you'll have maps you'll have uh, mug shots of npcs you'll have lots of stuff on the table to kind of go over and we just felt that adding like lots and lots of dice on top of that is going to be too messy and distract from from what the game is about so we wanted to kind of make the game system rules a little bit more fade a little bit, a little bit more into the background so that's why we uh, devised a system that kind of keeps the mathematics the probabilities the same but it's a, bit, a little bit less intrusive on on the table so that's kind of the reasoning behind it this was a question that i had early on when i first saw i guess the a preview for the game but knowing that the game that you guys had to crowdfund for this why was that? Why did you guys have to crowdfund for this? I just, I don't know how the process works in terms of game creation. So I wonder if you could walk me through that a bit. Yeah, I mean, we have done a bunch of crowdfunding. I mean, that was one of the things we did early on when we started out. Uh, different platforms at first, but then Kickstarter. So then we've primarily been there. 
Um, it's been a great way for Free League as such to kind of grow. And, and we've been with, using crowdfunding. We've been able to grow and, and become, you know, make the games that we dream about without having to bring on you know, any investors or anyone else. We kind of just did it by, you know, getting investments basically from the, the players themselves, which has been great for us and that's something we are we have a you know good community at at kickstarter and and it's a become a as kind of a for not every project but the big ones we 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 enjoy doing that um and even uh, we're now in a position where we perhaps we don't necessarily need to kickstart something to be able to do it it's still a great way to see how big the interest is because that kind of tells us how much we can put into a game, how, much, how far we can go in terms of adding stuff into a game. So the level of support in a Kickstarter still gives us a lot of good information and, and helps us uh, develop the game and, 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 and know how much we, we can invest into it and, and, and so on. So we, if we can, most of the time, not every project, for, but for many projects, uh, Kickstarter is, has been really you know, good. We have really good experiences using crowdfunding, basically. So for Blade Runner, uh, it, however, we didn't do it for Alien because it's fairly uh, not that common in licensed games to have uh, uh, crowdfunding. Uh, it's generally not super common. But we did it for The One Ring, which is, uh, we did, uh, uh, that was last year. Uh, another big license game, obviously, and that worked out very well. So after that, I think we all felt that, you know, why not kickstart uh, the Blade Runner RPG as well? And, and when the, you know, the licensor was fine with it, then we just felt, yeah, let's, let's, let's do that. It, because uh, it's, it's, it has so many benefits for us uh, that we just felt that if we can, we'd be happy to do so. So uh, that, I think that's just a short in answer for that one. It also just leads to such good coverage and momentum and word of mouth. I feel like early on, like this was funded in three minutes on Kickstarter, which is <laughs> pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that becomes Absolutely. a new story that, in itself, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's the one of the other big benefits of Kickstarter is that community you get. And, and of course, it's not only good, I mean, it's hopefully fun and good for backers, but it's also great for us to get feedback on the game during the process of creating it, which is something it's not as easy to do uh, in another, you know, when, if you do a more traditional form of, of funding for a game. So yeah, the whole community aspect of, of, of kickstarting something is, has been, you know, super useful. And I think for, for all, everyone involved, I think that just leads to a better uh, game uh, in the end. I want to get back around to the game and some of the scenarios and, and things, but before I do, just while we're on the topic of it, one of the really great things about your games, and I say this, I have quite a, quite a few of them, is the attention to design and production quality and like just the, the beauty of the publications. Like, I'm, you know, I have the Heart of Darkness um, standalone scenario for the Alien RPG right now on my desk, and it really, it's like a library quality thing. A lot of the time, you know, depending on what level you back something at, also you get a lot of really interesting perks. Like another game of yours that I love is called Death in Space. That I think I, I, that's a you you published that right, but that's not a freely designed game. Ah, uh, that's true. Yeah, we're the publisher, but yeah, most of the games that we publish, we also design in house. Uh, Death in Space and Morkborg, they're designed by by external creators. But okay. uh, yeah, that's right. But even, you know, in, in games like that, which are significantly smaller in scope, you know, you get things like holographic printing. It just, just, it's just, it's a whole yeah. kind of experiential thing. So for people yeah. who 
you know, are interested in picking this up, if they missed, for example, the, the Kickstarter or the late pledge period, if somehow it opens up again, which I want you to talk about, um, what can people expect to get at different levels of support? Like what will this actually come with? Yeah, I mean, for I think, uh, and that is actually no matter if you're uh, we're in the Kickstarter or if you get it uh, through normal channels now, closer to the release. Uh, I think there is a lot. I mean, I think first of all, the general principle is that we, I think, we feel when we create a game that it has to have, you know, obviously the the game design, the content. It also has to have the graphic design and the art, but also kind of the physical for the physical product. It needs to also have that feel of, 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 you know, a quality book or box set or whatever, but it just has to have all of those components together to make, to make a role-playing game really, really sing. So that's kind of the core philosophy. And, and for this game, I think, I mean, of course, the core rule book is, is going to be a high quality book that, that I think even the standard edition, which is the one that will be available in retail is certainly going to be a high quality product. We had in the Kickstarter, a limited edition with a kind of a faux leather thing with a holographic print on it. It was kind of nice, but uh, it's uh, the, the, the whole rule book is, is it going to ha- is a high quality product through and through, but I think the area where you might, you know, see even more of, of the kind of, production value thing happening is actually the starter set it's it's not really i mean it's not a starter set in the sense that if you expect something small cheap flimsy that just to get you started that's actually not really what it is it's it's a boxed set it's a good starting point because it has a full scenario it has a condensed rule book but it also has lots and lots of handouts and we worked i think it's like 26 handouts or something and then they're all uh, we paid a lot of attention to making those handouts. They're printed on different types of paper to give them a more of authentic feel there. And they are really the idea is that as you investigate this case, you will basically fill up the table with these handouts and you will have to look through them for clues, but they also give you immersion into the world. So it's kind of, you fill your table up with all of these artifacts that come from the world of Blade Runner. And that's, that's something we uh, we hope players will really enjoy, and you don't really get the sense of that until you actually open up the box and just go through all of these these items. So I think that's that's going to be really cool to see, and hopefully uh, players will enjoy that. The the big question that I have is about the art. Now I've seen a lot of RPGs. The standouts to me lately have been, of course, the Alien RPG, which is the artwork was gorgeous, but specifically the Blade Runner RPG, just absolutely immersive and textural and beautiful. And I'm curious how that came about. Yeah, um, that's uh, both of those uh, games have the same lead artist. Uh, his name is Martin Griep. He's uh, one of the found, well, co-founders of, of Free League and one of the, in the core team here. And uh yeah, that's uh, he's done a lot of great work on RPGs. He start, he's for many for a long time. Uh, he also did our Symbarum game, and and then did Alien and and Blade Runner and and Coriolis and a bunch of others. And he's, I think his style just we. I mean, that's I'll be completely honest and say that they, he was actually they were a part of a different design team, but we joined forces with them in around 2018. So right before we we started working on Alien. And uh, you know, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that we really wanted to join forces with uh, with them was actually his artwork because we that would just be 
you know, such a perfect, perfect match. Yeah. So Martin was actually one of the reasons that we, uh, one of the reasons that for us wanting to combine forces with the this other team, Team Yanringen, who did Simbarum. So that's, uh, and and just to get him on board for Alien, which uh, was just the perfect match. And yeah, I think his style really is got that moody, atmospheric style with just enough detail, but not too much so that it kind of leaves you as a reader or player to fill out the gaps with your imagination. I think that works really well in role-playing games. And uh, I think for Blade Runner, it, it, he did an amazing job. I think overall, just having a single or at least a very small number of artists in, in a role-playing product really helps. I think because that sets a consistent feel and tone for the entire kind of the universe you'll be playing in uh, as opposed to having like 20 different artists with different art styles because then you kind of get thrown out of the illusion every time you turn a page and see a you know an art piece in a completely different style at least, at least that's the way it works for for me so yeah i think martin is a you know a key factor in in, in making the book look the way it does yeah his work is just Un- unbelievable. And I, I really like what you said, because this is something that I've thought about as I've played games before, but never really articulated. It gives just enough detail to cement your imagination somewhere, but not. But there's not so much that it kind of dictates what you're seeing. And this is something yeah. that, you know, I, I feel some games get right and some games don't. Uh, but one of the things that I love about all of the games that you guys put out that I played is they all have that they're like impressionistic and they kind of, you almost kind of smell where you are, but then you can kind of put so much into that. So I guess before we close on that same kind of note, um, one of the last things that I was curious about is, you know, the, the reason why I love role-playing games is because it's the process of telling a story together with friends and exploring that story together. Right? So when the art works well, it aids that when the gameplay works well, it aids that. How do you, balance the this tug of war between having rules and having combat and having attributes and you know health hit points and things versus this idea of just kind of letting people explore the story how do you how do you find that balance when you're designing a game like this yeah that is that is always the challenge i think and i think what the ideal situation or the the goal is to actually not have the rules fight the story or get in the way of the story, but rather the other way around, that the rules should be there to actually enhance the story. The rules should create, help create situations in the game that would not happen without the rules. So that I think that's the way we see it, that we try to create a game system, a rule system that that pushes the story along and into unexpected but interesting twists that feel like they belong in this setting in this world and are in line with the kind of the overall franchise it should be the rules could, should create blade runner situations that's kind of the the entire goal of, of the thing and they have to be intuitive and easy to use and 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 you know so that they don't get in the way and you just stop because you have to kind of flip through lots of pages i mean that's that's the goal to have them simple intuitive enough but also create situations and push the story along into thematically appropriate dramatic situations and that's always kind of the the goal of 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 what we do and you know whether we succeed or not that you know hopefully sometimes we do that's definitely the goal um i guess just before we close i have two two final questions and then i'll turn it over to jamie if he has anything um the first one is something that's been so great about the alien rpg is the consistent amount of new content coming for it you know we had chariot of god we had 
Destroyer of Worlds. We just had Heart of Darkness. We have these these big new adventures, the scenarios that come out, right? Is that something that's planned for for this RPG? And my uh, last question is, if people would still like to get it or support it, where can they go? Yep. Uh, on the first question, certainly. Uh, we're definitely planning uh, more, uh, a bunch of modules uh, for the, the kind of the format for modules, initially, at least for the Blade Runner RPG is, is something we call case files. And the first one is included in the starter set. Uh, and this a, so that's basically a, a complete case file to solve uh, for, for, for the characters. And we intend to publish more of those also with the, you know, handouts and everything. And all, each of them is like an investigation. And the idea is also for them to tie together. Each of them is a full finished story. You don't, it, it's not just, you, know, you can get a good experience playing just the one, but also the idea is to have the next one pick up some threads and continue the story so that uh, when you play perhaps five or six of them, they will also create a larger narrative. So yeah, we have some really, some big plans uh, for, for these modules coming up. Uh, and then we might also do more like campaign focused books that are more setting focused, but that's a bit later on. So definitely big, big plans for lots of expansions and modules. And, uh, and, uh, and as for the, on the other front, uh, at the moment, we're just, uh, we're nearing release. We're hoping to release the game on December 6th, uh, that we still don't have the game in, in our warehouses. So it's still a bit, you know. We're still checking, tracking numbers every day to see where the containers are and so on. And hopefully it'll, it'll be there in time. So, And uh, we'll start shortly before the, the release of the game. We'll also start uh, a short pre-order, probably sometime in the middle of November, I would believe. That's awesome. Uh, so my final question would be, and it probably was more appropriate for towards the beginning, but was there any character or anything that was off limits to you guys? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, not that I can, um, not off limits as such. Uh, no, I, I, I'm thinking here whether it's something that we completely could not, we're not allowed to do, but no, I, I, not that I, not, nothing that kind of leaps to mind. Uh, as long as we obviously need to, res you know, respect the canon and, and the publications made, but Apart from that, uh, no, not really, uh, not not nothing specific, you know, that I can think of. Yeah, that's great. It just you know, obviously, with things happening in a larger IP, sometimes there's storylines that are going to be explored later, and they're like, oh yeah, this is you can do this, but you can't do that. So that's very very interesting. And with that, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show for taking some time out today. We were really excited about this, and uh, we were glad that you could make it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tomas. This has just been wonderful. And I want to give a special shout out also to Boel, who uh, is at Free League, who has been just a dream to deal with. You just have such a great team. Uh, everything you guys put out, we love. And I can't wait to, to get playing this thing. So best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be on. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.